Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is CEO of Synergy. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation, and complex settlement planning. Joining me on Trial Lawyer Review is Christopher Norman, an outstanding medical malpractice trial lawyer and partner with the Baltimore, Maryland law offices of Waste, Vogelstein, Foreman, and Offit. And let me uh, read some of his bio to give him a proper introduction. Chris has the unique honor of having been named a super lawyer's rising star first for his work defending healthcare providers, and most recently for his work advocating on behalf of injured patients. He leverages the inside knowledge that he gained as a rising star medical malpractice defense attorney in his unrelenting effort to get the most for the injured patients that he now represents. Chris was also selected to serve on the Board of Governors of the Maryland Association for Justice, Maryland's Principal Assembly of Trial Lawyers, which is dedicated to improving the civil justice system through legislative advocacy and the professional development of other attorneys who represent the injured. A large portion of Chris's practice is dedicated to representing children who have suffered devastating physical and neurological injuries as a result of obstetrical and neonatal malpractice. Chris is licensed to practice law in Maryland, the District of Columbia, Illinois, and in federal courts, and his expertise has been tapped to represent birth-injured children across the country on a pro-hack beach basis. In addition to being named as a super lawyer's rising star on numerous occasions, Chris has also been honored with a superb top medical malpractice attorney rating by AVO, with AVO's Client's Choice Award for Medical Malpractice, as a top 40 under 40 attorney by the National Trial Lawyers, as a lifetime charter member of re-ratings Best Attorneys in America. Chris has also attained Martindale Hubble's most coveted AB preeminent rating, which signifies that the lawyer's peers rank him at the highest level of professional excellence for legal knowledge, communication skills, and ethical standards. Chris is a graduate of the University of Baltimore School of Law, where he served as senior staff editor on the Intellectual Property Law Journal. Chris also served as a clerk for the Maryland Court of Appeals Standing Committee on Rules Practice and Procedure, and has his, had his writing published in a law journal. Chris has a BA degree in philosophy and political science from Salisbury University, where he was a member of the Bellevance Honors Program. Chris, welcome to the show. Appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, I have to ask, uh, I, in doing some research for the podcast, uh, came across a little fact that you made your first solo airplane flight before graduating high school and was a motorcycle racer. So I'm I'm I, I'm curious because I used to bike race competitively. I got struck by a car a few years ago uh, when I was cycling, and 
that sort of ended my 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 racing bikes. But now I've gotten into getting out on the the racetrack with my car. So I'm curious to find out why why you you do those types of activities. Awesome. Uh, it, it's just something I've always been drawn to. You know, I think it it really is uh, in keeping with the mindset of what I think makes up a good trial lawyer, and that's kind of the desire to always be in competition, uh, the desire to take risks, and the willingness, frankly, to take risks. Um, so it's just always been something that has excited me. You know, I thought uh, before I decided to, to enter into a career of practicing law that I wanted to fly airplanes professionally, maybe be a fighter pilot or something like that. Um, so I had the opportunity to start flying planes in high school and did my solos and things like that. Um, come to find out my vision isn't quite good enough to be a, a top-level fighter pilot. So I switched gears, and here I am. Uh, and the motorcycle racing has just always been something that uh, I've gotten a, a great deal of pleasure out of. It's a good way to kind of uh, detach from the world and just get on the bike for a couple hours and have fun, um, something I enjoy doing with my father, uh, who's since passed. So. Um, just a lot of really good memories and um, a lot of opportunities to get my juices flowing, so to speak. So are you uh, in, in motorcycling, are you off-road or are you on-road? Uh, off-road. Okay. Um, so it was primarily motocross and flat tracking. Um, I don't race anymore. I've got young kids, though. My son is starting to get into it now. So, oh, that's awesome. Um, those doors are opening back up, and it's yeah, very exciting for me. None of my kids wanted to bike race. None of them had any desire. I, I think, you know, after seeing some of the crashes and some of the, you know, some of the uh, the loss of skin from uh, from going down on the pavement, I think it, it swayed them against that. Also, I, I grew up playing ice hockey, too, and had a few gruesome injuries playing men's hockey league in my my 30s and none of them wanted to play any of the sports that I like so oh well you know what, yeah. what do you do yeah. but that's great that you've got your your son that's interested in it so is that you know now do you ride with him like you did with your dad I do yeah we uh, every chance we get we get home and you know even if it's just you know around the house or on the trails um, it's a great way to to spend time with them and and do something together that we both really enjoy. So, yeah, I know you know with a, a demanding career as a, a trial lawyer, it's I'm sure you know one of those coveted times that you get to spend with him when you're when you're not busting your hump on on the next case, moving moving it towards trial. So, absolutely, and it's a great lesson for him. I mean, it's not a an inexpensive hobby or sport. Um, so to be able to show him that we work hard. So that we can have these things um, is, is a good lesson for him too. Yeah, absolutely. Great life lesson. So uh, besides the, the motorcycling um, and, and before you get into law practice stuff, what else do you enjoy uh, outside of the office? Sports of all kinds. Uh, I mean, I grew up wrestling and playing football and lacrosse. So uh, doing those things now with my kids and nephews. Um, really anything that has to do with the outdoors. I love to be outside and hunt or fish or um, just, you know, we're stuck in the office so much as lawyers that every chance I get to, to get out there and just enjoy nature and take a big breath of fresh air, I take it. Yeah, that's what I love about cycling. And people always ask me, why do I keep cycling on the road? Why don't I, you know, ride a Peloton after getting hit? And I'm like, you know, there's just something about being outside and enjoying nature and seeing the scenery that you just cannot get any other way 
other than being out there and enjoying that. Absolutely. You said Peloton. My wife got one in the uh, initial stages of the pandemic, and I ride it more than she does. I've never really cycled for exercise, and it's, I mean, what a workout. Yeah, I've actually ridden them, you know, when I was traveling but before the pandemic, and I actually really liked it. You know, I mean, it's just, but I, I couldn't do that all the time. It's, you know, and I, I wound up stuck on a trainer for about, two months after I got hit, you know, cause I couldn't, couldn't be on the road due to my injuries and man, it was brutal. I, I was so happy and glad to get back outside and just enjoy that. Although we're, we're getting to the point, you know, in Florida now where it's, it's getting, getting to almost be summertime. So it's, it's getting to be a little bit warmer. Good time to enjoy, you know, now, cause it's not quite yet the full Africa summer heat here in Florida. It's coming, but you know, it, we're, we're, we're probably a few weeks away from that. Yeah. Absolutely. We're in that kind of fickle stage in Maryland now in April and May, where it doesn't know if it wants to be summer or winter yet. So we'll have these gorgeous 70 and 80 degree days followed by what we have today, you know, in the fifties and rain. Ah, so, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to it. We're getting, that's close. why I live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, how did you decide to make the practice of law your career? Did you have, you know, role models that were lawyers? Was it something you always wanted to do or did it did just stumble across it? I did. I mean, it, it was kind of twofold. So my uncle, uh, who was a mentor of mine, was an attorney with a law practice uh, on Main Street in Bel Air. Um, he was also really involved in politics in the, the um, House and the Senate of Maryland for a long time. So uh, growing up with him and having an opportunity to interact with him uh, professionally, got me interested initially. And then when I realized that I couldn't be a fighter pilot uh, or that it wasn't you know, the best choice for my future, I was trying to think of, of jobs where I could um, engage in a way that it felt like the competition that I enjoyed from sports. Um, so one of the things I love about practicing law is um, just kind of the competitive head-to-head -head, um, you know, interaction that you get, especially as a litigator. Um, so it's that kind of underlying uh, desire to always be in competition for something, I think, that, that drove me to it ultimately. Yeah, so I'm curious because, uh, you know, I, I saw in your bio that you were on a, a law journal. I was actually on two law journals um, in law school and actually really kind of enjoy, I've always enjoyed the, the writing aspect of the law, but I'm curious if that was something that you really enjoyed or whether it was a situation where you, you felt like it was you know, one of those things you do for your career? It was the latter. I hate writing. <laughs> uh, you know, I love taking depositions. I like being in the courtroom. I like theorizing cases and digging through medical records. I don't like writing. I did it because uh, it's the thing that you're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, I was writing and research editor for one of the law journals, and that was that it was pretty brutal. Yeah, you know, some of the things that, that yeah. you had to do in terms of editing things that other lawyers wrote. I, I actually, I enjoy writing. I, I still, I've got a law practice that's outside of Synergy, so I still get to handle some things. And I, it's primarily Medicaid liens here in Florida where we have a, an administrative law process that I, I handle. But I really like, you know, still doing those sorts of things because I enjoyed, like you, taking depositions and being in the courtroom. So I still get to do that. 
but I actually enjoy writing still. It's, it's one of those things that for whatever reason, it's just, you know, I, I, I like doing it. Yeah. It's an absolutely a necessary skill. So I'm glad I did the journal stuff and, and had that exposure and experience. Um, I just didn't get a whole heck of a lot of pleasure. Out of it, to be honest with you. Understood. So I, you know, I saw from your bio that you started out as a medical malpractice defense lawyer. Ironically, that's, that's what I did right out of law school. Um, can you talk about your experience on that side and what ultimately led you to represent injury victims instead? Sure. Um, so my mother is a nurse, uh, so I've always enjoyed kind of interacting with her about her patients and uh, the medicine and things like that. Um, so that's kind of what led me into the malpractice world initially. Um, and I had my first opportunity in that world to do defense work. Um, and it was a great experience. I'm glad that I did it. I think it's given me a lot of insights um, that are beneficial to my clients now that I'm on the plaintiff side. Um, but it, it was really uh, um, a couple different scenarios that, that made me question my desire to, to work on the defense side. You would get calls from the insurance carriers with new cases and you're assigned a case. You don't get to pick your clients. Um, so there were times, there were times admittedly where I'd, I'd read the records and I'd read the complaint and I felt like it was a defensible case. And I'd meet with the doctor and he's a good guy and tried to do his best. Um, and I had no problem working on the defense of those cases. What really put a bad taste in my mouth was, you know, reading the records and receiving the complaint from the insurance carrier. And you realize very quickly that the care rendered is not defensible. And yet you still have to defend the case and try and deprive the injured victim on the other side of the compensation that they probably deserve. And I didn't really like that. Um, or you'd read the records and the care was okay, maybe defensible, but the doctor was a jerk and you still have to defend him um, because, again, you don't get to pick your clients. So um, I actually had a case against my current partners when I was still doing defense work. And at the conclusion of that case, they'd asked me if I wanted to join them. Um, it was a decision that I stewed over for a while, frankly. I was newly married and had my first child on the way, just bought my first house. So, you know, it's a big... Uh, a big jump to go from a comfortable place to uh, kind of the unknown. But I'm glad I did it because now, <clears throat> like I said, I have the opportunity to choose who I want to represent, to pursue only the cases that I think are worth pursuing. Um, and at the end of the day, when the cases work out, which knock on wood, they usually do, um, we change lives and in a really impactful way. So I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I love that last part because that's something I talk about all the time with our team is is that you know we get to be a part of that process too that the impact that we can make is such a positive thing if we get a lien completely wiped out or we protect someone's medicare eligibility or you know make sure that they can get medicaid into the future or protect the the financial recovery those are all things that we have the opportunity to change someone's life for the better after they've been through something that's horribly traumatic for the most part you know that's um it's pretty pretty uniform and something that I really hammer home for our team. Every time we have our, our all hands meeting each month, we, we highlight an injury victim and their case and explain how we made a difference because that mission is incredibly important. And that's one that we share with the law firms that choose to partner with us. So it's, it, it's I really liked hearing that last part because it really is, is, is very much, you know, in line with, what we 
want to make sure is always the focus of our mission here at Synergy. Absolutely. And you guys do a fantastic job of it. I mean, we use you exclusively for difficult to resolve liens. And actually just last week, you guys had a lien of $155,000 knocked down to 30 grand. Um, so we put an extra $120,000 directly in our client's pocket. So we definitely share in that mission, which is awesome. Yeah. And that makes a big difference for that person, you know, ultimately, because that's money that can be used to care for them. I'm curious, you know, was there a specific case that you recall on the defense side that sort of really kind of pushed you to it? I mean, I know you mentioned that you had a case where you were on the opposite side of your current firm, but I was wondering if, you know, because I, I just remember getting to the point at the end of doing defense work. I did med mal defense and then did workers' comp, and I was just, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be on that side anymore. I just felt like I was not part of the solution, even though, you know, everybody is entitled to that defense. Like you said, I just felt like for me, I, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I'm curious though, if there was a specific case or it was just kind of the culmination of a lot of that. Yeah, it was, it was more the latter, uh, the culmination of things. I mean, in addition to, you know, having to, to defend cases that I didn't find to be defensible and represent people that I didn't care to represent. Uh, there's other things too about being on the on the defense side. I mean, you're you're tracking your your days in six minute increments, right? Because you're you're billing uh, by the hour. Um, so really, just a culmination of um, you know the the daily grind of it. And I I love to work. I mean, I grew up in a family that owned a, a small blue collar business, and I was working 55 hours a week since I was about 12, getting my hands dirty and the hard work doesn't bother me at all, uh, but the tedious, repetitive reports to carriers and tracking hours in six-minute increments, and then you throw on top of that um, kind of the, the distaste that I developed for defending certain cases, and uh, um, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. Yeah, same, yeah that's a very similar experience to me. I, my, my family owned their own printing company growing up, and I worked in you know that company growing up doing you know, a variety of things, getting, like I said, a lot of manual labor and man, you know, it, I don't mind hard work, but the, the, those aspects, you know, the, the point two here, the point three on the timesheet and the, you know, dictating yep. letters about status of the case. It, I don't know that it's, it's definitely not a, not the most attractive side of the defense side of, of the table for sure. I'm curious what what was it that attracted you to to your particular firm that you work for um, became ultimately paying partner with what was what was it about their practice that attracted you? Um, a, a couple of different things. Number one, their focus, our focus is and has always been um, representing children who are injured as a result of obstetrical or neonatal malpractice. So the cases are very complex. Uh, they are very aggressively defended, um, and and they are very meaningful for the people that we're representing. So the opportunity to to be involved in in complex litigation um, that really kind of keeps you on your toes every day um, is something that attracted me to this firm. And of course, the opportunity to change the lives of these injured kids is is pretty awesome. Uh, on top of that, when I was on the defense side, our firm, Waste Vogelstein has always had the, the reputation of being 
uh, not only competent, but also aggressive. You know, there are firms out there who represent uh, patients in malpractice cases who are working every case towards settlement. Um, and one of the things that I liked about the Waste firm is that they're willing to try cases, including the big cases. And sometimes that's what has to be done in order to get appropriate compensation for these children and not be strong-armed by the insurance companies and not be scared of losing a trial here and there. Um, so the nature of the cases that they work on and their aggressive approach to these cases and be willing, being willing to try, to try them, excuse me, um, it are, are two things that really attracted me to this firm in particular. Yeah, I know medical malpractice cases are, are very costly to work up and, and try. How did you develop your niche practice handling these cases? Was it just by virtue of the firm's practice and becoming involved with that particular litigation group within your firm? You know, that's just handling these 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 difficult physical and neurological injury cases uh, due to OB and neonatal malpractice? Yeah, I did some obstetrical defense work, so I had some exposure to it already before I joined these guys. Um, and it's really um, the, it, it's, it's so complex that it's almost a different area of litigation than general medical malpractice. It's something uh, that you really have to have expertise in in order to do effectively. Um, so, you know, we already have a, a great stable of expert witnesses. We already have a great base knowledge regarding, you know, the placental pathology and the radiology and how all of the different specialties kind of come together to form a prima facie case. Um, so the, the, the base was already here. I had some exposure on the defense side. Um, and, and it's really, again, not something that you dabble in. You know, you'll talk to a lot of malpractice lawyers who don't do the birth injury work because it's really a different animal. Um, so we've, I guess, just slowly developed that niche and that expertise. Um, and I've been able to thankfully continue that with these guys. In terms of the scope of your practice, are you primarily local or do you do stuff, you know, kind of all over the, the place? So we're, we're all over. I would say um, probably about 40% of our total practice is in Maryland uh, and the rest is outside the state. Um, last year, I guess it's two years ago now, we opened up a, a Midwest base with an office on LaSalle Street in Chicago. Um, so we do a lot of work in the Illinois area. We do a lot of work in Texas. We do a lot of work um, in the South and in Pennsylvania. Um, so we're really national. And I think um, our willingness to try these cases and some of the big results that we've gotten over the years um, ha has caused other lawyers from throughout the country to bring us in to their complex birth injury cases. So we're really doing it. Uh, all over. So you're doing a lot of co-counsel work across the country? We are, yes. That's great. Yeah, I'm curious, and this is a question that I, I frequently ask lawyers on the podcast is about, you know, with these types of cases, especially because I've, I've seen enough over the 20 plus years I've been involved in, in settlements, it, you know, MedMal cases involving children are you know they're 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 tough cases to to deal with emotionally for the families. How are, how do you empathize with the clients to tell their story to the jury yet not become you know consumed or distraught with the harshness of some of these these tragedies that you see? 
It's a good question, and it's it's difficult. I mean, uh, as a father myself of two children, it is emotionally draining sometimes, frankly, uh, to 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 see what these children are going through. But the flip side of that is knowing that if we remain focused and we don't let ourselves um, get so invested in the case personally that we can't see the forest through the trees and we can't do our job professionally, um, by by keeping that focus, we know that um, the result of that will hopefully be a recovery that will change the, the child's life. So I think um, it's impossible not to get emotionally connected to these victims uh, on some level, but it's also uh, necessary to not become so emotionally entrenched that you're unable to do your job as their uh, counsel effectively. So it's a, t it's a tough balancing act. Yeah, that's, again, one of the things I, I talk a lot about with our team is just understanding what people have been through by the time they wind up needing Synergy to help them with some aspect of the resolution of their case. And, you know, that that kind of be able being able to empathize, understand, um, but not be consumed by it. Because some of the stories that we see are, are just so just difficult to deal with as a person knowing that there's someone that's been through something you know so traumatic that it's changed their lives completely and i know you know from having seen enough of these birth injury related cases it changes the whole family because you know oftentimes if they've got other children they have to spend so much time caring for a child that you know has tremendous needs as a result of what what occurred and you know, it's, it's really tough for the family, although there is, you know, obviously what you do gets them hopefully to a place where they have more resources to deal with it. Because one, you know, one of the things that frustrates me immensely is just the public's, you know, they, they don't understand because they've not seen it that you, know, you may have a case where it settles for $5 million, sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, the life care plan says that person's going to need $50 million. $5 million is is really a drop in the bucket with what they're going to need. And then they wind up needing government assistance to, to augment what the dollars are. Right. Yeah. And that's frankly one of one of our jobs as the lawyers who represent these children is to um, really dissect the numbers and figure out what they actually need. Um, you know, part of the process is typically establishing a special needs trust so that we can preserve their benefit eligibility and their benefit status um, so as to not waste down the money that we've recovered for them too quickly. Um, you know, looking at annuity options and other ways to protect the money over the long term and how it should be appropriately invested. And um, Our job as lawyers who represent these children is not only to bring their case to a positive resolution, but it's also to help set them up for the future on the back end. Um, and oftentimes that involves, you know, people like you in your office helping us figure out the best way to structure things and organize things so that um, the kids have the life that they deserve. Yeah. And, you know, we, we refer to that internally as the case after the case, because, you know, it's not just as simple as as resolving these these types of cases in particular. There's a whole lot that's got to be considered and planned for, you know, when you've got a child who may be, you know, two or three years old and who may wind up living 40, 50, 60 more years, um, you know, you've got to make sure that you've protected that, that child and provided for all the, 
possible contingencies in the future to make sure that whatever is put into place is, is going to stand the test of time. So it's, it's, it's incredibly important to make sure that that's why they're protected. Is there anything that you could share with other trial lawyers who might want to model their career after you or develop a niche like yours? Yeah, I mean, I think the the law has gone in a direction where um, everything is so specialized. There aren't a lot of uh, general practice shops anymore because the law, again, has become so complex. So I think one of the things that's enabled me to be successful is to uh, find uh, something that I'm interested in, that I'm good at, and really try and focus on it. So I think um, developing an area of specialization not only makes you marketable professionally, uh, but it also makes you effective um, when you're able to, to litigate cases that are really within your niche and in your wheelhouse. So uh, pick something that you like and that interests you and do what you can to try and become a, a real expert and a real specialist in that area. Yeah, that's great advice. That, that being a subject matter expert is, you know, how we've kind of built our practice too, is just because obviously that's part of how you market yourself is, is being that, that go-to with respect to certain issues that others struggle with. So that's that's great advice. I, I know you're on the Board of Governors for MAJ. What is the importance to you of being involved with a trial or organization like MAJ? So for me personally, uh, I am uh, most involved on the legislative side of the MAJ's efforts. Um, so for, for those of you listening who uh, have some experience in this world, you know that the hospital associations and the big insurance companies are constantly in Annapolis uh, trying to pass bills that would limit the rights of injured victims. Um, a battle that we fight continually is a battle over what they call the birth injury fund. Um, and what that would do is uh, take away the rights of children who develop obstetrical injuries and instead force them to, to, to pursue legal action against um, the people who negligently cause their injuries and instead force them into almost a workers comp type system where the state runs a fund that they have to go petition every time they need a wheelchair or every time they need attendant care. Um, it's, been, it's been done uh, in certain iterations in places like Florida where you are, uh, which has just been a complete disaster. Um, there's been one in New York that's an opt-in, opt-out type system, but it's really uh, big medicine and big insurance trying to exculpate themselves uh, from, you know, the ramifications of uh, their negligence and instead, uh, you know, take the constitutional rights away from these kids and make them, you know, petition a fund for the rest of their life. So there's no justice, there's inadequate compensation. Um, that's just one example of the type of legislation that folks on the other side of this coin are in Annapolis asking for constantly. So um, again, given my involvement in politics with my uncle, um, I, I've always had an interest in that. And that's really with regard to the MAJ where I focus my efforts trying to defeat bad legislation and try and get legislation through uh, into law that would benefit um, people who are injured as a result of malpractice and other torts. Yeah, it's such an important thing, and most people don't realize the, you know, the fact that there's really very few uh, people fighting for them when it when it comes to this sort of thing. You know, when there's you know, insurance pushing for caps on damages, that you know, 
basically make uh, a child's life worthless or an elderly person's life worthless because they're not, you know, they're not in the job market. And, you know, typically those, those, uh, those limitations, those caps wind up impacting the value of those cases, making them almost, you know, impossible to try. And, you know, that, those things are things that people don't appreciate that trial lawyers are, are actually trying to protect them. And, and a lot of people don't care until it winds up being them or their loved one that, you know, is the victim of, of an incident of malpractice. So it, to me, that's one of the most incredibly important things that trial lawyers do, aside from actually affecting change from, you know, holding corporations or hospitals or doctors accountable for, for harming people. Absolutely. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head saying that often trial lawyers associations are the only people uh, in the legislative arena fighting for, for victims' rights. I mean, it's a, a, a very true David versus Goliath situation where it's our trial organization versus the rest of the world. I mean, uh, you know, these insurance companies and hospital systems have almost unlimited resources and connections. So um, it's another, again, opportunity for me to kind of be in that competitive atmosphere where um, we've got to really fight and, um, and we've done it successfully thankfully over the years but it's a never-ending battle yeah. so uh professionally what are you most focused on currently um, and what are your firm's plans for the near term long term so uh our practice we, we do represent victims in you know the whole gamut of medical malpractice cases from nursing home to cancer misdiagnosis er cases surgical cases um, but our, our true focus is really on the birth injury work. Um, and that's where I think we will continue to focus because you know, frankly, we're good at it. Um, in terms of the, the plans for the firm moving forward, uh, like I said, we're gonna continue to focus on representing children who are injured as a result of obstetrical complications um, and continue to grow the practice. I mean, over the course of the last few years, we've opened up uh, the new office in Chicago um, we've added a few lawyers. We're up to 18 attorneys now. So continuing to grow uh, to the extent we can responsibly. Um, and that will just enable us to help more and more people across the country with these types of tragedies. So is there one tip that you would give other trial lawyers that um, is part of your secret to success in, in your practice? Sure. And I, I, it's not a secret, I don't think. Um, but what I found and what I've always stressed on associates that work with me um, is that there's no substitute for hard work and preparation. You know, uh, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. And oftentimes I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Um, but I am never the person in the room who hasn't prepared the most or hasn't worked the hardest. Um, you know, so going into depositions, you need to plan weeks in advance. What do you want? What documents are you going to use? What's your objective? Um, and really map things out and, and, and prepare um, like you need to in order to be successful. So for me, it's no secret. There's no secret sauce. It's, it's work your butt off um, and make sure that you're doing absolutely everything in your power to be the most prepared, hardest working person in the room to represent your clients. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. It applies uh, in and out of the practice. You know, being, being the most prepared is... Uh, and, and outworking everybody else is important, whether you're an athlete or, you know, a professional or even in your personal life. So great, great advice. Uh, 
so last question before we we wrap up and it's a little self-serving and and i i always ask it and we sort of touched on it a little bit but i'm curious you know to hear if there are any specific trends that you are experiencing in terms of settlements and issues that arise you know i know what i see a lot of on the listservs that i'm a part of with other trial lawyers is you know a lot of complaints about the aggressiveness of medicare advantage lien holders and you know the problems with medicare and you know the erisa plans being very stubborn after mccutcheon I'm just curious if there are any specific things that you're finding in your practice challenging um, that relate to, to issues that arise at settlement. I think, I mean, the two biggest things that we're seeing more of recently are um, an expansion of what I would consider to be typical confidentiality provisions in the release. In Maryland, at least, it's it's standard to have uh, confidentiality with regard to the fact that the case settled and the amount that the case settled for. Um, and what I'm seeing over the, the last year or two is an attempt at expanding the confidentiality provision. So uh, the defense lawyers and their insurance carriers are wanting to try and, um, you know, make all the deposition transcripts that have taken place in the case to, to be covered under that confidentiality umbrella. Um, and things like that. So that's number one. And then number two, uh, as you know, over the course of the last few years, um, Medicare has really started to enforce again the idea of these Medicare set-asides. Um, so that's something that, you know, five, ten years ago, nobody was focused on because Medicare didn't enforce it and it wasn't really a part of the post-resolution practice. Um, but now we've got to, you know, be more in tune with what is required in that regard in order to safeguard our clients. Uh, and thankfully, we have folks like you who can help us, uh, you know, walk through that process and make sure that we're doing everything above board in a way that won't get us or our clients in trouble down the road. So really wading through the set aside issues is something um, that's relatively new for us that uh, is, um, you know, something that I guess is challenging or at least requires a bit of extra attention. Yeah, you know, one piece of advice for, for everybody listening is this Medicare issue is, is not going away. And really, the, the best thing to do is, is work collaboratively with the defense once you've reached settlement to figure out exactly what uh, is going to be uh, expected. Because, you know, what we see a lot of times is that everybody just ignores it. And then the defense has pretty onerous requirements that they're insisting upon you know, in terms of release language and, you know, making things a lot more complicated after the parties thought they had the, the matter wrapped up, but yet wind up, you know, dealing with a lot of these issues in, in a forum that's not great because it, it can wind up in, you know, back in the court's lap trying to enforce settlement because of a disagreement over some of these terms. So when I talk about this, I, I always encourage people particularly because you know now medicare requires the defendants to report every settlement with a medicare beneficiary of 750 dollars or more so pretty much every settlement has to be reported you know that means that you've got to you've got to know what's being reported and make sure you're collaborating and coordinating with defense to, to hopefully avoid issues and we've seen cases where another final demand was issued Medicare because the wrong date of accident was used or, you know, if there's first party coverage that can, that can also in auto cases make it more complex. So lots of issues for, uh, 
for lawyers to worry about. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you talked about confidentiality because, you know, years ago there was the, the Dennis Rodman case, which, you know, had to, deal, had to deal with that issue of confidentiality and making sure, you know, ultimately when you guys do that, that there's no consideration for it because that can turn what is otherwise non-taxable, you know, personal injuries under 104A2, the Internal Revenue Code into a portion of it being taxable you know, for being basically the consideration for confidentiality. So interesting that that's, it's, you know, for, for you guys, yeah. it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of complexity. That's, uh, that's really not part of being a trial lawyer. You know, it's, 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 like I said, the case after the case can, can be just as complex sometimes. Absolutely. For sure. Uh, and that's why it's good to have, again, people like you guys who, who specialize in it, you know, we specialize in, the litigation of birth injury cases and um, don't, uh, at least I don't kid myself that I'm an expert in, in Medicare resolution stuff. And uh, that's why it's nice to have a, a strong network of people who have different areas of specialization for sure. Yeah, I guess that's uh, job security. That's why you're specialized too. It's, you know, it's being in that niche and, and being able to help other lawyers. So we're, we're in a similar business, I guess. Absolutely. Well, Chris, it, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me. Um, if a listener has a MedMal case they want to talk to you about, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Sure. So uh, we welcome referrals, of course, from lawyers and from patients. Um, like we touched on before, we co-counsel with, with folks across the country, especially on high exposure uh, birth injury type cases. Um, my email is chris, C-H-R-I-S, at malpracticeteam.com. My office number is 410-998-3600. Uh, I'm not one of those lawyers who's tough to get a hold of who dodges calls or whatever. So shoot me an email, call me. If I can't answer, I'll call you right back, um, and I'd love to talk with you about your cases, whether it's co-counseling or you just want advice on experts or um, you know how to figure out a certain issue in your case. I'm always happy just to chat, so give me a call. And we'll put in the show notes your email and phone number and website so everybody listening can simply look at the show notes and find the, the contact information that Chris just provided. So thanks again, Chris, for joining me today for Trial Lawyer Review. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of Trial Lawyer Review. Very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.